All right. What's up, Oasis? Hello. Hey. All right. Yeah, let's go. Um, last time I was up here and preached, I talked about sex. So this is, this is going to be sex part two. I'm skipping Mosaic, John. We're going straight. Just kidding. I had to do that joke because it's a joke that Sean was going to do when he preached through Matthew. And I thought it was going to crush, but Sean, you were right not doing it because it didn't go over very well. Doesn't help that I was three weeks removed from it. I miss you guys. And obviously I've been here, but uh, there's just, I, I've enjoyed the last three weeks. Um, one, it's, it's freed me up to meet with people. Um, I, I got to lead worship one of the weeks. But I just, I see such a huge benefit for us as followers of Jesus to get different voices into our lives, to hear from different people, different experiences, different teaching styles, the truths of God. It doesn't change the truth of God, but when you get it from a different perspective, someone who's had a different story and testimony than I've had, someone who teaches in a different manner and way than I do, that's just healthy for us and it's good for us because what it does is it, it trains not only you guys, but even myself as a follower of Jesus to be able to hear from multiple people. It's I don't want to be someone who can't respond and receive from other followers of Jesus, both an invitation into relationship with Jesus and, and the reality of his character and heart for me, but also in challenge in becoming more like him. So I've enjoyed the last few weeks and I'm thankful for, for Sean and Brennan and Gina. And I get to finish up with our Mosaic series. We're finishing up with the, for sure the last Sunday where we're all together. Reminders, Brennan said, December 6th and 13th, we're going to do a couple oasis for you young adults and college students who will still be here. But tonight, I get to go through the Gospel of John. And so we went through the Gospel of Matthew where Sean talked to us about how Jesus is the fulfillment. Brendan came up and he climbed a ladder and it made me nervous because I thought he was going to fall and die because I would have fallen and died because I hate heights. And he talked about the reality how Jesus is our suffering servant who came to serve us and then that challenges us to go and be a servant to others. And then last week, Jaina comes and she preaches on the gospel of Luke and gives us reality and this truth that the gospel of Luke is for all people, that he came to flip over people's worldviews and their thoughts about how life should work. And he challenged Jewish leaders and we got this realization of the gospel and the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus back then was for all people and that's still the reality today. And so tonight I get the gospel of John and we're finishing it up. And we started the series and we did this and we had this idea because we wanted to look at the holistic picture of who Jesus is given to us through the four gospels of Jesus. The four gospels written to give us not just a biography of who this man named Jesus was, but a reality of what he came, why he came, what he said, and what he did. And in the first three gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they Mark, which is what we believe and even scholars believe was the first written and Matthew kind of took Mark and he kind of wrote his own version, which is Peter's version as Peter told Matthew, or no, other way around, Peter told Mark. Matthew took Mark and wrote and kind of had some consistent things, but then gave his own version of it because he's writing to a different context. And then Luke comes along and being the doctor that he is and what the overachiever that it seems Luke is gave everything in this super comprehensive biography and life of Jesus. And then comes John written decades later after the other three. Some would say in AD 90, 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 60 years, wrote this gospel. 
And some people look at this gospel and they say, oh man, this is a gospel of belief because the word belief or faith in some way, shape, or form is said over 100 times. And some would say it's written in this beautiful format of you get this introduction that is a poem that's so beautiful and then the first half are signs and wonders, which they would call almost like a book of signs and then you get the resurrection of Lazarus and then the second half of the book, they call the book of glory of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and his life, death, and resurrection, and the ultimate, and then it ends with this beautiful epilogue. Some have called it the gospel of life. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take a little bit of a dive, not a deep one, because there's too much, of what was John trying to get across. And what's awesome for me in this gospel is that John gives us a verse and tells us, here's why I wrote this book. It's like, I didn't have to do a lot of work. (laughs) Because he told us in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, this is the theme. This is like, this is why everything in this book was written, this gospel was written. Jesus performed many other signs than what he had previously written in the first 19 chapters in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, the book of John. But the ones that I have written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The purpose of this gospel, of this book, is to show us John is trying to present to us Jesus as the one true source of life. One more time. John presents Jesus in his gospel as the one true source of life. Everybody say life. Life. One more time. Everybody say life. And so what we see, and when I think of the word life, so it's okay that you believe he's the son of God, he is the Messiah, but that he's come to give us life. And a lot of times when I think about life, I think of like, especially like pre-Jesus and high school, kind of high school, but more so like introductory freshman year college, like, okay, what am I supposed to do with my life? We think through the future and, and sometimes get anxious and worry. Sometimes like, okay, what is my life supposed to look like? We've seen the people of our past, our parents and our grandparents live their life and some have done it really, really well and we've been encouraged by it. It's like, I kind of want to follow that and some, not so much. Some interesting facts about life for the average American and even when we think of like, okay, what do I want my life to be? How do I want it? We try to map it out and I want to get to the point where I can retire and I want to live this American dream. I want my life to be perfect and comfortable. But in the average lifetime, in our average life, and these are some fun facts, more so for me, because I think they're hilarious and some of them I don't agree with, and I'll tell you why. Uh, The (laughs) the average American spends three years in business meetings. Sounds terrible. 13 years watching TV. I know that's a lie, because I probably have watched 13 years and I'm only 33. (laughs) It lets you a little bit into my life more than I probably should let you know. $90,000 on food. But we consume 110,000 pounds of food. 110,000 pounds of food in our lifetime. I think that's low for me. (laughs) I think I would double that easy. A lot of food. I mean, six pack in a pound. I'm eating over a pound whenever I go to Taco John's. I'm sorry, that's not a joke. I'm packing six pack and a couple pounds that you can't see the six pack. 
We make, we make almost 2,000 trips to McDonald's in our lifetime. I know that's not right because I know I've already, I've already surpassed that. Like, especially when we first moved here. And if you guys remember last year and here last year, you heard, I like to tell stories about my family, right? I got, I got two, I almost said two kids. I have three kids because we just had a baby. But last year, I would tell this story. I was like, man, anytime my wife is gone. So my wife works in Watertown. She has way better hours now, which I'm super thankful for. But when she worked, she would work nights. And then some weekends, it's like, okay, Ben, you're in charge of picking up kids and making dinner. It's like, <laughs> making dinner meant going to McDonald's. My kids have had over nearly 2,000 trips to McDonald's. <laughs> and I think this is, this doesn't make sense to me. We eat nearly 36,000 cookies and nearly 1,500 pounds of candy in our lifetime. Low, for sure. <laughs> we catch 304 colds in our lifetime, which... If I look at, at me and Abby, I definitely have caught more colds than she has. And I don't know, at some point, I think men in here, listen to me. You guys will understand this thing called the man cold if you already haven't experienced it. And for some reason, it is just worse than any cold that my wife has ever gotten. And so it says 304, but even if I've had less than that, my experiences with colds have been even worse. Is involved in six motor vehicle accidents. That sounds terrible. On average, men are hospitalized eight times. And women are hospitalized 12 times in their lifetime. I think that counts childbirth, which if it does, and it should, then men go to the hospital way more than women do, which makes sense because we're sometimes dumb. <laughs> and we spend nearly 24 years sleeping, which makes sense, right? A 30-year life, averaging about 72 years. Yeah, it's close. And so we have this life, this one life that we've been given. And there's all these things that we experience that we do. There's these things that we think about that we want to experience and we want to do in our life. And we, some of us make plans more so than others. And then there are moments where those plans get disrupted. And there are moments, which I believe tonight is a moment for some of you, praying for all of us, that you have that God enters in and wants to disrupt your life a little bit. And I think he wants to redefine what life looks like for you. Like he has redefined what life looks like for me. You see, John, as he wrote this gospel, was the apostle, the disciple John, who was most likely one of the youngest disciples. He was the one whose brother was James, who was, they were fishing together with their father Zebedee, and when Jesus came along, invited them and said, come, follow me. And not only did he follow Jesus in the 12 apostles, there was an inner circle of three, and John was a part of that inner circle. You see, John has a special look into Jesus' life. He spent some of the most sacred, intimate, and hard moments with Jesus that Jesus experienced. The Garden of Gethsemane being one. Where Jesus is praying right before he knows he's going to get arrested, betrayed, and ultimately crucified. He's praying and he's so anxious and he's worried about it. Jesus is, because he's human. Then he starts sweating blood, which is an actual medical condition. And what he, Jesus did is he didn't want to go to the garden alone. He invited three people and one of those people was John. 
So as we read the Gospel of John and everything that I'm about to say, there is something special, a relationship that was special that Jesus had with John. And we can know that partly because there are three separate times in the Gospel of John where John says, he is the one whom Jesus loved. Like, how bold do you have to be (laughs) out of all of the apostles and disciples and people who follow Jesus to write that in the gospel that you write? This is the one, I am the one whom Jesus loved. He's an eyewitness to the life of Jesus and to the most intimate moments in Jesus' life. After the resurrection of Jesus, John continued to play an instrumental role in the early church. And in doing so, what we know is he became a huge part of advancing the gospel to Greek people in Asia Minor. We know at the end of his life, there's some stuff in early church history that he would go to the church of Ephesus and he'd have to be carried in by other disciples and followers of Jesus at this church and he'd come and all he would say is love each other, dear children, talking to the congregation. And at the end of these services where they would get done reading the word and praying together and worshiping together and fellowshipping together, disciples would come up to John who's at an old age now and, and they would say, why is that all you say when you come to the church? And he says, because if that's what we did, it would be more than enough for the world to know Jesus. He had an intimate faith. He knew Jesus well. And in his gospel, which some have called a spiritual gospel, a godly, divine gospel, not because it's more special than the other four, but what he does is he gives us an intimate look and an aspect of Jesus that the other three don't. When I say John presents Jesus as the source, as the one true source of life, what I hope comes to mind and what I hope comes to question is how exactly is Jesus this source? What does it mean that Jesus gives life and is the source of life? And we're gonna start right away in John 1. So if you have your Bible, open it up. John 1, and we're gonna read all verses 1 through 18. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And verse 14, it says, the word became flesh. So this word that was with God in the beginning, this word that was God, came flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. And right away at the onset, 
The first three words of John, John's gospel will catch every Jewish reader who reads this immediately and point them straight to Genesis. Where in Genesis it says, in the beginning God. And what's beautiful and amazing about Genesis chapter one is I think that it's actually poetry written to set up the reality of Genesis two. Genesis one was written by, we believe, Moses. And as he wrote it, he was giving a depiction of, okay, if there is God, we believe in the beginning this God created everything. And not only did he create everything, he was powerful enough to do it through his word. And he just sets up the whole creation story through this imagery and poetry that's beautiful. And then we have a second creation story, but I think, again, Genesis 1 sets up Moses and whoever's reading it for chapter 2, which says, we believe that the one in the beginning who created all things through word, through speaking, we believe that that God is Yahweh. And so right away, John writes his God, he says, in the beginning, every Jewish reader automatically write in. All right, what do you got? Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke started with the birth of Jesus, John starts at the beginning of time. And it's important. So how is Jesus the source of life? As we read through verses 1 through 18, he says, in the beginning, John John begins by quoting Genesis. In Genesis 1 through 5, he establishes that this word is a pre-existent agent of creation present with God from the beginning. You see, God's son who is Jesus, isn't an act of creation, but he's the means of it. Everything that around us that exists was made by Jesus. And I know that's so weird even for me to fully comprehend, and so there's some reality where I have to take in faith the words that are being displayed by John and written by John to try to help his readers understand fully, here's who Jesus is He was not just a mere creation of God because he was not a creation of God. He was the one by which everything was created. So where it says in the beginning the word, we can say in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning and through Jesus all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been in Jesus' life and that life is the light of all mankind in beginning. And so, and then using this word, word, in Greek, which is what the Gospel of John was written in, is the word logos, or logos, depending on who you talk to. And this word logos would have automatically started to sharpen up not just Jewish readers, but now also Greek readers and Gentile readers, especially Greek readers in Asia Minor, where John believed his gospel was going to go out. And so they would read this, and logos in the Greek means reason or rational thought, as you would just read it. It literally in English for us is translated word, but it meant so much more for them. Philosophically, it meant something deeper and greater. The Greeks' idea of the word as God's active agent on earth would have resonated with them and the notion that the logos was the stabilizing principle of the universe. Anyone seen Star Wars? Just me? Maybe? No? Star Wars, right? This is what they would call the force. (laughs) I'm serious. This active agent that is all present and all around that is more powerful than we can ever imagine that stabilizes the entire universe. But John's usage here combines, yes, Jewish and Greek concepts about the universe and its ultimate reality. His use of the term logos, or word, does not appear to be indebted solely to Greek philosophy. He's not just trying to appease Greeks who are reading the gospel. He's doing something more. His presentation of the word as he writes it down gives it a personal creator involved in creation, not just some force that kind of is active in our midst. It's the reality that this power that created all things 
is a reality and was made flesh in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And he was with God and he was God. That is how Jesus is the source of all life. So we not only get that through John's words, but we also get that as a proclamation of Jesus himself. And I don't know if you've heard this. I'm going to try to fly through this. (laughs) which never works. Um, But from Jesus' own mouth in the Gospel of John, what we get is 10 distinct I am statements. Right? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Right? He says, I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And there's one distinct I am that he says in John chapter 8. And literally all he says is I am. In John 8, what is happening is there are, again, Jesus is getting tested by different Jewish leaders trying to figure out, okay, who is this man? They're trying to catch him up on something so that they can either bring him to court so that maybe they could have him arrested or that they could disprove all the teachings that he's doing because he's disrupting society. So they come and they ask these questions and they're trying to address his authority. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus' claim combines both his pre-existence, like John said, in John 1 1 through 18, but also his divinity. In saying I am, what he's doing is he's going back to the time where Moses encountered the burning bush. And so in Exodus 3, it says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers is sent to me. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. The traditional explanation of the meaning of this divine name of Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am. Is saying, I am the one. I am the God of all things. The creator of all things. I am the one who sent your father Abraham into a land to be free. I am the one who gave the promise to Abraham that through him all nations will be blessed. I am the one who sent Moses. Not just to go be a voice for the Israelites in slavery, but I am the one who brought them out of slavery. And we know this is more than just a statement of I am. We know this is more of him saying that he's just a prophet or a teacher. Jesus is proclaiming that he himself is God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and John challenges us to believe him. And we know immediately that it rubbed the wrong way because they said immediately after hearing this, after hearing Jesus say I am, they pick up stones to stone him and kill him. And Jesus got away. (laughs) Because what he was saying was more than just being a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet. Jesus himself declared that he is God, which is why he was killed. Because the Jewish leaders weren't having him. Because there was only one God according to them. And Jesus could not be him because he was man and was flesh. So from John's own words in 1 through 18, he declares Jesus as God. Jesus himself says that he is God. The apostle Apostle Thomas, who's called Doubting Thomas, was the one who said, I need to see, like I need to touch his hands and the scars on on his hands and the scar on his side. And Jesus came and showed him 
And Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. So because Jesus is the source, that he is God of life that we need, of life that is given to us, we need to go through real quick, what is this life given and what does it mean for us? And real quick, I need to say this. So the distinct, which is with God, and the divine, who was God, word, that is used in John 1, is Jesus who came to bring the presence of God and to give us life. So what life did he give us? I'm gonna go through four words and then we're gonna get into baptism. So buckle up and get ready. Life in Jesus is infinite. Number one, first I, they're all I words. This life that John has said, Jesus is the one true source of, first and foremost is infinite. Life is used in the ESV version of the Bible 47 times in the Gospel of John. And nearly 40 of them are this Greek word called zoe. And zoe is this reality of eternal life, of life uniquely possessed and given by God. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It can never be defeated. It can never be taken away. Over 40 different times, or nearly 40 different times, as John is writing this gospel, he uses that Greek word zoe that is uniquely given and possessed by God and he tells us that Jesus is the one who came to give you that life, eternal life. Right, John three sixteen. God so loved the world. He sent his son. Whoever believes in him has what? Eternal life. It's infinite and it's everlasting. It never ends. It's infinite in that it's abundant. And this is more of me wanting to address what we Americans have defined as fulfilling and abundant life than me actually doing anything else. So in John 10, 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. That's the NIV version. The ESV version says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The NLT version says, I have come that they may have life, rich and satisfying life. And the message version says, I have come that they would have eternal life, a better life than they ever dreamed of. And what we've done with this saying, so this life that is infinite and it's, an, it's eternal and never ending and everlasting is also abundant and completely fulfilling. But what we've done is we've taken the word abundant and we've crossed it over with our experiences in this world. We've defined abundant and fulfilling as this American materialistic idea of what it means to have a fulfilling life. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is giving us something better and even more. It's not this, I don't know if you've heard of this, this prosperity gospel where life will bring you blessing and life will be good because now you have Jesus and now because you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he's gonna give you the blessing of the material things of this world. That's how we've defined abundant and fulfilling life. In reality, what is happening here is this life, this abundant, rich and satisfying, better life than you ever dreamed of is a life of safety and hope and peace. It gives this images of a flock who has the shepherd. And the shepherd who is one in giving the sheep life comes along and he says, I'm gonna protect you from the enemy who's come to steal, kill, and destroy you. I'm gonna provide for you in ways, even when we're wandering along in the desert and you feel like nothing is going right. Jesus as the great shepherd says, no, I'm come that you would have a fulfilling, abundant, satisfying life. I will provide for you. This abundant life that Jesus came to give is a life that is full satisfaction in the shepherd who protects, guides, and feeds the flock. 
It's not this confused and I think distorted idea of having a fulfilling, blessed life of what it looks like to be an American in 2020. It's a reality of, no, I'm a follower of Jesus and his kingdom come first. And no matter what my life brings, I know that I have a shepherd who's come to feed, protect, and be with me. And I have full satisfaction in that. This Zoe, this eternal life that he's come to give you, that you would experience abundant, rich, and satisfying life is being able to get to the point in your life where you can say, no matter what I come across, Jesus, you are my satisfaction, nothing else in this world. Because once you come to that reality, it doesn't matter what gets thrown your way. Life in Jesus is infinite. Second one, life in Jesus is immediate. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dare to Share, but there's a guy named Greg Steer and Zane Black, and they say it like this. They say, life with Jesus starts now and it lasts forever. I think we've had this misunderstanding that when we give our life to Jesus, it's great, my, my ticket's punched, now I know I'm good and I'm gonna be in heaven. And what we miss out on the reality is that life starts now. It's immediate. John 6, 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, not the one who believes will one day be in heaven with God. It's the one who believes can now experience eternal life, abundant, fulfilling, satisfying life because ultimately they've realized and understood through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that he is everything that I need. And it starts now. We can experience heaven now, not wait until we die. It's immediate. Life in Jesus is intimate, one of my favorite words. John 17, three says, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This eternal life, this always that we would know God, that it's intimate, personal, and a growing knowledge of the Father and of the Son. It's not just intellectual facts. It's a desire within us to want to continue to grow emotionally in understanding who God is, his truth, his truth, and who he says that we are. And finally, life in Jesus is inspiring. John 11 is a story of one of Jesus' friends named Lazarus being risen from the dead. So Lazarus, he dies and Jesus hears word. And because Lazarus uh, was Jesus' friend and Jesus was friends with Lazarus, he was grieved and he mourned. So he went to go and be with Lazarus' family and even more so to go and show God's glory on display. And when he gets to the house, he gets confronted with Mary. And Mary asks where Jesus has been and, and she says, Jesus, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus responds like this. He says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Sorry, it's Martha. And then Martha answered, I know he will rise again in, the re in resurrection in the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am declaring being God again. Going back to the picture of the burning bush in Exodus. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so he says this, and he has some more conversation with Martha. And then Martha goes and gets married and says, Mary, the teacher is here. Our rabbi is here. Jesus is here. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and he wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb where Lazarus was. And he was in the tomb for four days, dead for four days. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And verse 39 says, take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, life in Jesus is inspiring because life in Jesus brings hope. It's the reality that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that death no longer has a hold on us. That we do not have to fear coming to the end of our days. That we can live this life in a part of that full, satisfying, rich life in Jesus is the reality that we have a hope in the resurrection because Jesus was resurrected. Worship team, you guys can come up. Life in Jesus. Jesus who was the one source of life. The one and only source of this life. Life in him is infinite, it's immediate, it's intimate, and it's inspiring. Do you know this life? Have you experienced this eternal Zoe? Life in Jesus because he's come to give it and to offer it. In 1 John 1, as I was reading it, there are three distinct verses, verse 4, 7, and 9, that if just taken as those one verses can give this almost application that all people will be saved through Jesus. And so if you only read verses 1, 4, and 1, 7, and 1, 9, you would think, okay, Jesus came to give life to all men, and all men will have life and light which is why we need to read scripture in context. But in verses 5, 10, and 14, he says, but there are people who saw Jesus who didn't receive him. There are people who walked side by side with Jesus, saw the things that he did, and didn't believe and trust him. So Jesus, yes, is the one true source of life for all people. And that life is available for every single person. But as John 1.12 says, even though others didn't recognize who Jesus was and didn't believe, it says those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to experience life. Have you received Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who has existed for all time, through whom everything was made, who from his throne in heaven decided to come down and live the perfect life meant for us, died a death that we were supposed to die because of our sin, and was raised from the grave, defeating sin and death forever.
and his interaction with Martha, what I didn't read, is one of my favorite aspects of the entire story in, in John 11. He says to Martha, he says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he asked, do you believe this? And she replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So my question for you is, I believe a question Jesus would ask you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? And that through him, you will have life that is infinite, it is immediate, it is intimate and inspiring. Have you trusted in Jesus for your life? God created you because he loved you and he wanted a relationship with you. But sin screwed that up. And because sin screwed it up, that relationship was broken. And in sin, we live for ourselves and ourselves alone. And even in living for ourselves, living in our sin, doing the things that God does not desire for our life, he sent his son Jesus, that everyone who would believe in him would have life and would not perish. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this life starts now? that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has made that relationship once broken with the Father, once broken with God because of sin, has made it right. Do you believe you are saved through Jesus? We're gonna sing a song, and then we're gonna go and enter into doing baptisms. And we're gonna have an experience and an opportunity where we get to see testimony of people who have given their life to Jesus, and they've come up and they're gonna be baptized and saying, I'm publicly confessing my faith before the church. If tonight something has happened in your soul, and when I ask the question, do you believe this, and tonight is the first time you've ever been able to say yes, and where you're saying, I'm trusting in you, Jesus. I believe that the death that you died for me on the cross was sufficient to forgive my sin. That through your resurrection, you've defeated the grave and death. And now I want to live my life for you. If tonight is the first time where you can answer the question, do you believe this? And say, as Martha said, yes, Lord. And you want to publicly declare that before the people here. I'm going to ask you to come and meet in that back door. If you want to publicly declare through baptism that tonight I'm saying yes to Jesus for the first time. Would you be baptized with the other people being baptized tonight? I'm gonna pray. Those of you who are being baptized, you know who you are. Go ahead and go into that back door as we go through the song. Me and Brendan will be back there. And if you wanna, for the first time tonight, you said yes to Jesus and wanna publicly confess and declare that through baptism, would you meet us back there as well? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for life. Thank you that in our sin, you didn't leave us there. You came and you saved us. You said, I'm for you. You said, I will not leave you. 
to death and destruction and to perish. But I've come to save you and give you life. So God, I ask that you would help us find complete satisfaction in Jesus. That yes, we would pursue the goals and the desires that you put on our heart, but we would first and foremost lift those up in prayer and surrender to you. That as we run after our passions in relationship or career, in all of that, no matter what happens, we'd find our complete satisfaction in you, Jesus. Thank you for life. Thank you for testimony and story that we are about to hear of people experiencing new life and giving their lives to you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for tonight. Thank you for what you're going to continue to do. Be glorified in all things. Amen.